Would you turn to Psalm 70? And we come to Psalm 70, you notice it's just five verses. It's a very short psalm. Um, and it's also a psalm we've already looked at. Uh, if, you'll, if you'll turn just briefly for a second over to chapter, Psalm 40 and look at verses 13 and 17 and you, you just put a finger at Psalm 70 and you just compare those. They're the same words. So from Psalm 40, verse 13 through 17 and Psalm 70, they're, they're virtually the same words. There's just a few little minor alterations of the words, but uh, it's already a, a psalm that David has, has stated. Um, you'll notice in Psalm 70, it says, For the memorial offering, or to bring remembrance, in, in some of the translations it will say to bring remembrance. And then when you look at Psalm 40, it just simply says it's a psalm of David. And so that, that first part of the Psalms where we see to the choir master of David for the memorial offering, that's called your superscription. And what that is, is it just gives us an introduction of what type of psalm it was. Uh, obviously, it was to be sung, it was to be prayed, and this is for the memorial offering or to bring remembrance. So it's something that is looking back on, on something for our remembrance. David was writing this as a way of remembering something. Uh, if you look at Psalm 40... And you'll notice in verses 6 through 9, it speaks of this transition to David. Specifically, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within me. Now, many know that this is the transition from Saul to David. And so you think of the tumultuous years that David was under Saul. He writes this psalm during that transition. When you get to Psalm 70, it's a different situation likely. We don't know what the situation is, but many will relate it to maybe Absalom and the issues that he was going through with, with Absalom. But it is interesting that as you get to the end of Book 2 of the Psalter, there's a transition from David to Solomon. In fact, if you just look at Psalm 72, it says of Solomon. And so there's that transition in the psalmist moving, as we have seen, uh, to this climactic point that ends here in book 2, which then transitions to book 3. Just as a brief context of what I'm, I'm talking about when I say these books. If you look at the beginning of your Psalter, look at Psalm 1. Notice what it says at the top. It says book 1. You go to Psalm 42. Notice what it says at the top of Psalm 42. Book 2. Go to Psalm 73. You have book 3. You go to Psalm 90, book 4. Psalm 107, book 5. Each of those contains their own themes and their own uh, progression of thought. And so it's, it's climactic 
with earlier in Psalm 4, where David's moving through the trials with Saul. Then we get into the book 2, we see David is dealing with other trials of Absalom and so forth. And then it, it transitions in at 72 to where now it's, it's in Solomon's hands. And so you see that trans, transformation taking place there. In Psalm 68, it had language. I want us to see how this, this relates to Psalm 70. Psalm 68, beginning in verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. That, that phrase, God shall arise, is a, is a picture of the ark being taken into battle. And so it's the procession of God himself coming into Jerusalem. Psalm 69, which we, we looked at last week, many references to the crucifixion are mentioned throughout that. Then you come to Psalm 70, it's a cry for deliverance, desperation. Psalm 71 uses language for the resurrection. And so you see this, this movement of the procession of God, language of resurrection, uh, deliverance, prayer for deliverance. You see then um, the language of resurrection, excuse me, it was crucifixion and then resurrection. And it ends with Psalm 72, which is a prayer for that Davidic king to see fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham. So when you're looking at these psalms, try to note those progressions that, that help us actually bring context and understanding of each of these books that we see in the Psalter. In Psalm 70, though, he's under new circumstances, but he looks back on past circumstances and says the same words that he uttered when God had delivered him in the past. If, if, you, if you have words that the Lord has given us to praise him for deliverance, you don't have to improve upon it. And, and David is simply stating what God has already given him to state in this deliverance that he experiences. And so as we read Psalm 70, we're told to look back and to remember how God has provided salvation and deliverance in the past and so how he will help us now. That's the whole picture of the psalm. So let's read it. Beginning in verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. That is God's word. And as we've noted, though it's repeated, it's still given to us a second time for a specific reason. And we're called to meditate upon this to tuck this word into our heart and to learn from it, to learn how to pray, to learn how to sing these songs of rejoicing, how we should consider our own lives in the midst of trouble. I think it's a song of memorial offering is fitting that it's repetitive of something else that's already been said. How many times do we need to be told 
And so let us not just look past this because we've already read it. It begins with a prayer of deliverance and a plea for deliverance, a begging of deliverance. He says, make haste, and that's an imperative, and an imperative is a command, and it's not that he's commanding God of something, but it's one of those imperatives where he's saying literally to God, hurry up. You think of the boldness it would say to to go to God in prayer and say, please hurry. What does that speak of if you were to tell someone to hurry up? Is that that time's running out. And the more that time keeps running out and you're not getting a resolution, the deeper and the more stressful your desperation comes and feels like it's, it's weighing down upon you. And that's certainly what David is doing. So when he says, hurry up or make haste, and he, he says it more than once where he says, make haste to help me, make haste to deliver me, hasten to me, O God, in verse 5. God, hurry up. I can't handle it anymore. I think that that's when we are in the best place possible for God to do a work on us. Because when we're not in that place, we're very self-sufficient. We tend to think that we can do things on our own, but when we find ourselves in God's providence in the time of turmoil, uh, that is when our prayers are most fervent. And so he asks God to deliver him. He asks God to help him. He asks God to deliver him, to give him salvation from his enemies specifically. And he goes in to say, it sounds like imprecation, but it's, it's more, according to many of the Hebrew grammars that I've read, it's more of a prediction where he says in verse 2, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. So even though he's praying that this would happen, it should be noted that he's, he's basically saying, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what your future is going to be brought upon you. And he says that it will be shame and confusion that would be upon him. Those are, those are two terms that we have to see that are, are united together, that shame and, and confusion, because basically what he's saying to God is, let them be embarrassed. And if this comes in the form of prediction, it's because of their own devices that this will come back upon them. I read this just this this morning, and it's so true. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Do we understand that? He who digs a pit is going to fall into that pit. He who spreads a net to catch the bird is going to be caught in the net. Scripture repeatedly tells us that in its wisdom literature, that when we act a certain way, we will fall into that pit. So why do we dig pits? Knowing that we're just going to fall into it. But yet we're so prone to do that. Notice what he says of them. He says, let them be put to shame and confusion. Those who seek my life. That is literally to think of it this way, is those that would take pleasure in my hurt. 
They take pleasure in my pain. That's sadistic. For someone to think that, you, you can see the violence we see in our society where there is senseless violence against people, where it's a game to do violence against people. And then you can see how many followers you can get on YouTube. They take pleasure in hurting people. We can, we're aware of that type of sadistic attitude, that psychotic way that people think, and that is human nature. And left unchecked in society, people will embrace pleasure at the hands of violence. And so when he's describing those who, take, who seek my life, they're taking pleasure in this. Look what he says. Who delight in my hurt. It's as if they applaud seeing David in pain, if they applaud and seeing the righteous afflicted. You see in Psalm 38, verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. You think of the violence that exists in mobs or gangs. You know what's interesting is you don't see many old mobsters or gang members, do you? They dig a pit and they fall into it by the same means that they applied and forced on others. That's what David's saying of these, what will happen to, to them. Their outcome is already written. But we've seen through these, these later Psalms that so often the attacks that David was facing was, was that of lips, of gossip, of the mouth. And so those that oftentimes delight in hurt, those that seek the life of David, they can often come at him and hurt him with their words as we've seen. You see, gossip and slander, I think that that's more something that is one of those respectable sins, as, as Jerry Bridges calls it, that we're, we're acceptable. None of us, I, I would hope to the Lord, that none of us would think violence is good. But are there other forms of violence that we commit against our brother? And we've seen, we've seen in the Proverbs many times that things like uh, the, the lips and, and speaking against someone can be like a sweet morsel. It becomes addicting. So what, is, what does that say? Is that there's a delight in the hurt and pain people face through slander and gossip by the mouth. So you might not be tempted to go... And, and have physical violence on someone, but is there, is there a tendency where we might prop ourselves up at the expense of someone else and do violence to them and seek their harm? And it's all irrational and it's, it's harmful and it's a self-exaltation. But this is what, what David was facing, those that would delight in his hurt, those who would seek his life, and that seeking is going after him. And so he says, let them be turned back and brought to dishonor, very much like shame and confusion. In fact, we see a parallelism in, in, in verse 2 where he says, let them be put to shame and confusion. Then he says, let them be turned back and brought to dishonor. So it's saying the same thing with different way of saying it. And then he qualifies it. Who? Those who seek my life. Who? Those who delight in my hurt. Those who are taking pleasure in my pain. 
He goes on to verse 3 and says, Let them turn back because of their shame, who say, Aha, aha. That's an interesting phrase. It's to mock someone. That's what it's how it's usually used in the scriptures. And you see that in other places where you find these words, that it is a way of, of mocking someone, holding them in derision. In Ezekiel 26, verse 2, we read this, Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha! The gate of the peoples is broken, it is swung open to me, I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. And so it's a mocking use there over someone. And again, just as another example, so we get a taste of this word in Ezekiel 36, 2. Thus the Lord says, because the enemy said of you, Aha! And the ancient heights have become our possession. Meaning he there conquered foe. Aha! It was the neighing of a war horse in battle. So I'm not going to give you that sound, but you get the idea of it. It was to mock a person because they have been beaten down, they have been conquered. And so it's, it's really when a person's at their lowest because they face defeat from their enemies that there's a mocking that comes upon them at that point. And so we see the characteristic of those that are going after David. Wicked, evil people. And so David is asking that they would be turned back, they would be brought to shame, confusion, that they would be dishonored, that they would be embarrassed, that they would fall into the pit that they have dug. And David, in verse 4, then moves from not a plea for deliverance, but a plea for blessing. And it's amazing how David so often does this is where he's, we saw this so clearly last week, is where David is praying for himself because he's been attacked, but then he turns outwardly and begins to pray for the congregation because he knows that they're affected as well. So he says this, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. That's quite a turn. He goes from this imprecation to this prediction that they'll be, they'll be brought down in dishonor and shame, and then all of a sudden he's praying for other people, and he's saying, may, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. So he turns outwardly praying for his people. It's interesting, you look at verse 4, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. I just want to focus in on that word, seek, because it's in contrast to verse 2, those who seek my life. Those that are wicked seek pleasure and evil. Those that are in Christ seek after God. And and seek, it, it can mean... Looking can mean looking for something, but rather it refers to choice more than looking. To make that choice for God. That's more of the, the idea. And so while it can mean looking, it's, it's really the idea of choosing God as God has revealed himself to our hearts. In fact, Deuteronomy uses it this way in Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
In verse 29, we read these words, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. God had already revealed Himself to the children of Israel, and He tells them that He will show them a place to worship and tell them the place where they ought to go and that they would choose Him. And as we've been studying on on Wednesday nights, we keep coming back to Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse fourteen, which it really becomes the thesis statement of Second Chronicles, and it's all about seeking God. If my people who are called by name, my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We, you can't see the face of God. God is spirit. So when he says seek, it's the choose God. That's what he's calling for. Second Chronicles chapter 20 verse 4, it says, And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And the Lord makes himself known to those who seek after him. And we know that we do not seek after the Lord unless he gives us a heart to seek after him. We don't seek after the Lord unless he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. It is by God's grace that we seek after the Lord. You know, we we often think about in our own personal salvation that we have, there comes a point where we're of faith and we're now believing upon the Lord, trusting upon the Lord. And in our time frame, it's something we we make this choice to do. But what we don't see is that, that behind the scenes, what's taking place is where the Spirit of God has given you a heart to receive the gospel. And God's grace is poured into your heart, and now you're seeking after God. Now you're of faith. Is it by God's grace that we seek after Him? But look what the specific prayer is for those who seek after. May all who seek you, something He wants something to happen for those that seek God. That is that they would rejoice and be glad, and, the, and then the preposition is, is so crucial in you. So David's asking for deliverance. David is rejoicing in the Lord. He's glad in the Lord, but he's not glad in the circumstances. He's not glad in the sin of others that are attacking him. But in the midst of something, he can be glad and rejoice and be happy. Why? Because it's, it's not in what's happening to him, but it's a, it's, it's a joy and gratefulness and happiness that's actually in the Lord. Rejoice and be glad. May they be full of joy and no gladness. That is happiness. May they be cheerful. Let me just ask you a question not to to answer out loud, but to answer in your own heart. Is it possible to know the Lord and lack joy? Is it possible to know the Lord and not be cheerful and glad in the Lord? Let me just read you a couple of passages of Scripture. The first one is a statement of fact in Psalm 9, verse 2. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. This is something that David says that he is going 
to do. He states it as a statement of fact. In Psalm 33, in verse 21, he says, For our heart is glad in him. And and it's that same phraseology. Why? Because we trust in his holy name. And so this is speaking of a reality for those that trust in the Lord. Our heart is glad in Him. My whole being is glad in Him because we trust in Him. So there has to be this corresponding reality of trusting in God, having faith in God, and that corresponding reality is now that I have, I have joy and I'm glad and I'm happy. It's also something that we, like David, are to say that we will do as well. In Psalm 68, verse 3, But the righteous shall be glad. That is, they will be glad. They will exalt before God. They will be jubilant with joy. And this is solely a work of the Lord. Psalm 92, verse 4 says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. There it is. If the Lord has done a work in your heart, part of that work is joy in the heart. Jesus says this in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer where he's praying on behalf of the church. In verse 13, he says, But now I'm coming to you, and he's speaking to the Father, and these things I speak. Now hold on to that word speak. Hang on to the words in the Psalms of work. Hold on to those. I trust in you. And how we trust in God is through His Word. Think of all of those. Connect these together as we think of joy and the connection of being in God. These things I speak in the world, why? Purpose statement. That they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. It's amazing that Jesus connects joy directly to what he spoke. When you look at the psalmist... Joy is directly related to what God has revealed of Himself. Why is there such a lack of joy in the Christian? You know, look, I don't, I don't, uh, some, some people have this idea that joy is running around with a Joel Osteen plastic smile all the time. I don't think that that's what it's talking about. I think it's something deep-seated within the heart. In fact, I I finished preaching one time, and someone says, you you lack a joy of the Lord. And I was like, how? Because I I wasn't smiling the whole time? I I I don't think we confuse a smile with it. Now, it might be part of that. But it's a a deep settlement and contentment in the Lord. 
and it's directly related, Jesus says, and I think it's evident too in the Psalms where it's directly related to his word. And, and here's what we have to understand. How do we understand life in this world? How, how do you understand why you are living and breathing right now? It's directly related to the fact that God is doing all things for his glory. And you're part of that plan. And that God is good. And whatever happens in this providence, that God is working things. And God is a good God. And we know that because he's given us his word. So the more that we're in the word, the more that we're aware and reminded. Because we need to be reminded of things. Because we're very forgetful. And we don't pay attention to what God tells us. And so we tend to forget. Oh yeah, God's sovereign over all things. He's even sovereign over this tragedy that I'm in. But let me, let me ask the question another way. Why is it that we so often do lack a, a true joy? If our worldview is tainted by the world, and I think of in one of the ways that John translates that, that word cosmos in, in the Gospel of John, and it's our word world, it, one of the ways is referring to a system, uh, an evil system. How do we understand the world? And if, if how we understand the world is even a little bit influenced by that evil system of the world, that's going to taint our joy, isn't it? No, think about it. What is the world telling you? You're an accident. You are nothing more than a cosmic accident that took place by chance. Chemicals just exploded, and over billions and billions of years, you came from sludge that was in this primordial water, and you came forth. You've got no purpose. That's what the world has been telling us. We're told that evolution and that we came from monkeys is, is, is scientific fact. You have no point, no purpose. This is all it is, so live it up while you can. That's what the world tells us. What does the world tell us? Truth is subjective. How unnerving is it to not be able to know truth? Obviously, we can't turn on the news or trust what we read even in historical books. Or We're told that truth is subjective. It's relative. If you believe it, sure, it's true. We, we're, pay, we're, we're living in the consequences of that right now. Truth is subjective, so I can be a cat if I want to. Purpose is pleasure. That's what we're taught. Our purpose is pleasure. So therefore, what do we, what do we get caught up in? Even as Christians... We get caught up in making decisions based upon pleasure. Ecclesiastes 6 7 says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. How often it is that we're pursuing that thing 
And we think once, once I've got this thing, I'll be satisfied. But the problem is that the illustration of, of a hungry mouth is very adequate because what happens after you eat that meal a few hours later, you're hungry again. We pursue pleasure. And because pleasure cannot give us joy, we find ourselves lacking it. We see that sometimes our ultimate concern is ourself and not others. That's the world today, isn't it? Concern about oneself and not others first. But what does Christ teach us? To be concerned for others. To love our neighbor. And so there has to be a connection between God's Word and how we think about other people versus how we think of ourselves that contributes to our joy or actually contributes to the lack thereof. As we're considering ourselves constantly, we realize we can never, ever fulfill that. Is it possible to be a Christian and allow these things to taint our joy? Yeah, absolutely it is. So what do we do? We have to be rooted in God's Word. Because our joy in understanding situations like David, where he says this is a memorial offering, this is to bring to remembrance, our, our, our very joy before God is directly related to His Word that He has given us. And if we find ourselves distant, distant from His Word we will find a lack of joy, we will find a lack of contentment in our lives because we don't have His Word undergirding how we even live life. It's, it's so true that the majority of the problems that Christians face come from ignoring His Word So the prayer is, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say, evermore God is great. And this word for salvation is speaking of his, really his help. And those that have received God's help say, God is great. It's speaking of God's power, God's place of honor. It's, it's in other words, saying, may God be ultimate in my life. And how often do those that seek the Lord, how often do they, are they to say this? It's to be evermore. So, so what we do here, in part, will be fully realized in heaven. That it would be a continuous praise. And so our praise now is to be a, just a, a reflection of what we will do in eternity. You think of what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. I know we oftentimes focus on that verse on giving a defense for what you believe, but the verse starts off with, set apart in your hearts, Christ is holy. And that Christ is continually praised in our hearts. David has this beautiful prayer that they would would seek 
Him and have joy and forever praise Him. And then in verse 5, He tells us what the prerequisite to all of this is. And it's a true understanding of yourself. Book 1, paragraph 1 of Calvin's Institutes. You don't know God unless you know yourself. And you don't know yourself unless you know God. So who are we and what do we need to know about ourselves? But I am poor and needy. That's what you need to know about yourself. You are poor and needy. Luther's final words before he breathed his last was, We are beggars. This is true. To say poor is to be without property, oftentimes is what it means. To be needy is without money. This comes from the king of Israel. I don't think he lacked anything. And so what it's saying is that he's afflicted, he's wretched. All of this indicates one simple fact about David. He is utterly helpless. We have to recognize our helplessness. It's to say that he's fully dependent upon God. He's not self-sufficient. He's not taking matters into his own hands. He can't. And we must see ourselves this way. We must say with Luther, we are beggars. This is true. You know, it's interesting. Luther, when he was asked towards the end of his life how he accomplished so much, he said, I didn't do anything. The Word did it all. I hung out with my buddy Philip. That's a paraphrase. He says, I didn't do anything. The Word did it all. Luther realized that he could not do anything, that he was helpless, he was dependent. And this is what we're called to be as well. You think of what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're wretched before God. We're poor in spirit because of our sinfulness. With God, self-exaltation has no room. The world will tell you to be a law within yourself and to do things your own way. Regrets? I've had a few, but not too many to name, right? There's no self-exaltation. Whether it be our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification, it is a work of God of which we contributed Nothing to it. If you woke up this morning and you're breathing right now, you realize that you are needy. If you have dinner tonight, you are needy. You're dependent upon that. There's no aspect of our life, not one, in which we are self Independent, we are self-dependent, but we are completely dependent. There's no area of our life in which we're independent. There's no point in our life where we can become a law in and of ourselves and do it my way. There's no point. We are fully dependent. And it's only in light of that that we're ready to say these words that David says, You are my help and my deliverer. 
unless you recognize your wretched state, you'll never say, help me and deliver me. Because if you don't recognize your wretched state, you're going to say, I got this. We'll seek some other means of deliverance if we do not see ourselves accurately as poor and needy, that we may say, you are my help and my deliverer. Oh Lord, do not delay. And guess what? The Lord doesn't delay. He saves his people. How do we see ourselves? How do we see ourselves? It's reflected in how we treat the body of Christ first and our neighbor second. What a convicting reality that is. How do we see ourselves? Are we self-exalted, a law unto ourselves? Do we have a joy? Do we experience gladness even in pain and in suffering? And finally, I want you to notice the urgency in this prayer. The greater our troubles, the greater our prayer should be. And this is a prayer for personal deliverance and blessing, just for us to chew on. How urgent are our prayers for the lost? We always think we have tomorrow. We don't know that we have tomorrow or that person we're praying for has tomorrow. How urgent are our prayers for the hurting? How urgent are our prayers for injustice? How urgent are our prayers for the persecuted church? We never lack desperation that should drive us to our knees and pray to the Lord for deliverance and his help and even to say, Lord, please hurry up. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouraging word that you have given us. We thank you for this prayer we have from David. May it be our heart's song as well. We thank you that we may have joy. We may have an abundance of joy in Christ and that he gives us his own joy, that we may have peace, we may have contentment. We may have thanksgiving in our hearts. And we do, Father. You have, you have given us the richest thing that we could experience, and that is to be in union with your Son. Father, we thank you for your blessings and your provisions over us and how you so richly bless us, protect us, and guide us by your Spirit. Father, may we continue to meditate upon these words as we depart from here this evening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.